all I did was cook and cook and cook. Um, on my days off, I read books and watch videos about cooking, really taking your own education in your own hands and so that you're prepared for the day that you actually have to perform at work and like research about all the things that you see at work, even if it's like what's shishito pepper or uh, what's hose on. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, we have Max Un, the executive chef at Momofuku Sambar. Later on, Matt speaks with the editors of coffee magazine Spredge, authors of the book The New Rules of Coffee. Matt, who is Max? Usually when we hear about Momofuku, we think of David Chang. Tell me about Max. Right. So David Chang's famous restaurant, Sambar, it's about 10 years old. Okay. Max is the chef there, but you probably have never heard of Max because he's kind of a modest guy. And really, I, I've been going to Sambar for years and years. And I've, the last year and a half or so, I've been like, this is the best Sambar has ever been. He's doing these inspired dishes that kind of reflect his background at living in Singapore, dishes like shrimp toast, shellfish ensemble, whole fish steamed in banana leaves. But we also get into his journey to the United States, which is really interesting. What was that like? Okay, so he's cooking in Singapore, and he's like a legit David Chang fanboy. He admits this. He bought the Momofuku cookbook and studied it. So from day one, he wanted to work at Momo. So what did he do? He moves to the United States, and he enrolls at the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, which is like the Harvard of cooking schools. So when it comes time to apply for externships, of course, he wanted to work at Momofuku. He interviewed there. Does he get the externship at Momofuku? No. But this story, Anna, has a happy ending. Here's Matt talking to Max Un. Max Ung, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Well, I wanted to have you on the podcast. Um, I've been into Psalm. I think f- I've been going there for a decade at least. Uh, you're a decade old, so probably since the beginning. But um, I'm such a fan of what you've been doing for the last year. I mean, legitimately a fan. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a journey, and it's uh, throughout the whole time just trying to figure out, even through like coming to the U.S., just thinking about what I want to do, you know. So your story is really, really cool. You grew up in Singapore, uh, and then you you went to the CIA, Culinary Institute of America. Yeah, in upstate. What, yeah. yeah, upstate New York. So what was that, direct from Singapore to the CIA? Did you, was there a culture shock? Like, that's a small-ass town up there. Yeah, I guess uh, everyone in Singapore kind of get a little taste of America just by watching television. So I remember, like, growing up, my mom would be watching Friends, and I would be, like, sleeping to the hum of friends in the background. So there was a little bit of American like upbringing, I guess, through TV, but there was definitely like a different uh, vibe to how things are done here. People talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kind of had to work into that. So how old were you? Um, I was 25, 26. Then. Oh, wow. So, uh, let's actually go back a little bit further. I, I didn't realize that you were 25 when you moved. So were you working in restaurants in Singapore? Yeah, I was working in like... Uh, uh, modern French fine dining kind of uh, restaurant. Uh, back then, it was with the uh, Les Amis group, and then with Chef Galvin, with like uh, him and Al Jardin. So that was uh, that was my foot into like fine dining world. And about three and a half years later, um, I was just asking myself, All right, what am I gonna do next? You know. So it's either trying to 
open a sandwich shop in like the business district in Singapore and like maybe do something or try something else out. So you you went to the the Harvard of culinary <laughs> world in America. Uh, it's more about like I it was before there was. Uh, Flipping through like a Momo book at a friend's house, and someone was saying, "Oh yeah, this person in New York, he was getting two stars by selling ramen." But that was like obviously not the case. It was just like it was cool that got two stars. So I was like looking through the book. I was like intrigued, and I start watching like videos on Dave and Momo Fuku, and I was like, okay, you know. So let me get yeah. this straight. I think I get the picture here. You mm-hmm. were in Singapore. You went to the CIA with the sole purpose of working at Momofuku. Yes, uh, that's totally the intention. I, I, there was no way to come into the U.S. like uh, legit without like a student visa or a work visa. So um, a work visa thing is a little tough because you need to know someone before you can get hired. So, um, so yeah, I came in just to want to work for Momofuku, work for Dave, and uh, try to try this new thing out. It was like good food like at a higher level but more affordable more casual anyone can come in doesn't matter yeah this is a cool story i want to continue <laughs> talking about the 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 progression because you you went and did your externship with momofuku you ended up getting that externship was there an interview process or were they like did you tell them the story like i came to the CA just to work for you guys so take me please uh i think back then there was a very different time and i was trying to Send a ton of email to HR and Momofuku. I went to the career fair. There was the chef there. Back then, it was uh, Peter Sopico. Um, I had this goofy little portfolio I made. <laughs> it was, like, really goofy. I was like... <laughs> was it, like, your food that you'd cook, yeah, like, yeah, photos yeah. of it? Like, because before that, I was, like, doing, like, food competitions and stuff. I was like, all right, these are the food that, like, you know, trying to show that I'm, like, proactive or whatever. And I sent it to I gave it to him, and he kind of, like, uh, handed it back to me. And uh, he said, like, I don't really care. <laughs> so I was like, oh, God, how am I going to work for Momofuku? So after, like, 20 emails and talking to a few people, I, I even went to Ko to eat lunch back then. Oh, man. Um, and gave them my resume and all that and, like, nothing. And I was just like, fuck it. I'm just going to come down. I walked into Sambar with a backpack with my knives and my chef coat on a Saturday afternoon. It was busy as hell, and I walked up to the pass with my resume. I said, "Like, I demand a trail. <laughs> I really want to work here. I really want to work here." And he, I got my knife, and I just like kept talking. I was like, "I have a knife in my bag, my my stuff in my bag. Um, I'm just gonna come and trail right now." And the chef at the pass back then was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, slow down. <laughs> this is a fucking Saturday. You walk in, you try to demand a trail. It's not happening right now. Come back next week." I was like, "Okay, cool." And you were like, that's a glimmer of hope. Come yes, back next week. Because <laughs> I can't deal with the what ifs, you know? Like, I can't deal with, like, uh, regret. That's why I have no tattoos on me right now, I guess. Um, but I had to know for sure, like, I either get a solid no, I can move on, or I give it a shot. Max, you are made for this industry. Just your drive, just like hearing you talk about the story. And the success that you've had since. I mean, it's clear that you really have the great, uh, the right point of view. You, you just work hard, prove yourself, but you got to be driven, right? Yeah, you're just going to want it. You want to will it to the point that, like, at least you give it a shot. And, like, I always say, 
control what you can and you can't control anyone else but control what you can and anything else will fall into place if it doesn't then move on this feels very david chang circa 2004 just as an observer of his career 2005 like early on just reading about it and knowing kind of his place in the industry like this echoes his sentiment like get shit done focus put your head down and work yeah i i i I mean i try to do whatever that it takes to bring me to where i need to be and um i'm sure uh, dave thinks the same way but yeah we 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 just want the best for ourselves and for the people around us and that's that's all um i think for most part uh, i personally from singapore with like typical like asian parents are driven by shame uh and i always tell myself like all right i've my mom and dad wanted me to be like the engineers the lawyers the doctors uh or take over my dad's business and i said no to that and i told myself like my dad's been a great dad Mm -hmm. to me and my family so um it was something that if i chose to do this i have to be better than him if not i just uh, wasted an opportunity in life so so let's go back to the narrative the max ang narrative you do the trail get Mm -hmm. the gig yeah, and you start working your way up at Momofuku Sambar. Are you making like how many pork buns are you making a night? <laughs> like, give me a number. No, it, it was uh, it was fuzzy. I, I I can't even remember. All all I hear was just like a slew of orders from Matt. Matt was like the chef de cuisine back then, and uh, he really pushed the pace, which I really enjoy, and I really like thankful for that because that was my first look into a New York experience, and finally you get it. Like, okay. It doesn't matter what you do out in the rest of the world at that point. Like, when they say New York experience, that's, like, pretty much it. You push the pace and you just feed the crowd. And uh, all you hear is just, like, buns, buns, buns. And then back then, it was just... Mm-hmm. I was an extern, I guess. But mm-hmm. uh, thankfully, I had some experience behind me, so it didn't feel, like, too much of a shock. But still, it was... It was... Uh, it was tough. For sure. What was the like, give us an example of some of the dishes that you were putting out, like in in the quantities? Like how many balsams were you doing a night? Uh, balsams we range for at least like four to eight a night. Um, yeah, that's that's and you see your your other like teammates just like crushing it, and you'd be like, I can't be worse than anyone else because it's a team. You can't like uh, lose focus for one second because if I back up, yeah. it's everyone else in the shit with me yeah. <laughs> because of me and you never want that to be on your shoulders and you want to like carry your your weight with the team um so that 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 was like a driving force for sure so you uh you you rise at Sam, but then you go over to ko mofuku ko right and you rise to the chef de cuisine at ko yeah how that, long were you at ko i was at ko for three and a half years and like to Ooh. be honest uh I was never supposed to be in the country for that long. Uh, after being on a student visa, I had one year to mm-hmm. work. And I, I told myself, all right, I'm going to get this two Michelin star belt uh, under my belt and uh, go back to Singapore, find another job, yada, yada, yada. And uh, I thought I'll be like, okay, I'm just going to cut my teeth and go back home. Uh, and for the first four months, it was, <laughs> I felt I was doing the worst job ever. I always just felt like utter like rubbish for for my my four, first four months. I was like, shit, I'm gonna get fired. 
Like that was Sean Gray, it was uh, Josh Pinsky, uh, Carrie Hines. They, they were my chefs, and uh, I mean, they were like really helping me like as much as they could without trying to like physically help me. But uh, it's all boils down to myself, so I, I really try to push myself all all the time. And so you succeeded, and you made it. You made it. You you went past that year, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, halfway through, I decided like if I wanted to stick with Momofugu, I had to like invest in myself and like. So I sunk like seven grand into like getting attorney, like getting a uh, obscure like visa that like most people had a fifty fifty chance of getting. So it was just seven grand for a chance. So wow. So you so I think the perception for some is that if you work at a restaurant or work in you're employed, you, you they'll sponsor you, but clearly that's not how it works. And no, you yeah. had to invest in yourself. Yeah. Um, very admirable. I have a great admiration for you for taking that step and making that investment. Yeah, I think it, it was a definitely it was probably very stressful for you. Um, you're, you're modest and you're not saying that. Um, but then, so you, you had your immigration, you had your papers mm-hmm. in place. You could then work at Co. and you right. rose there. Tell me some things that you learned at Co. for the three and a half years there. Yeah, um, I guess working at Co. It's like you, no matter at any level that you start in. Um, you probably start at the bottom anyway, as you call me. But even at that point, you need to like have the focus of being your own man, your own person. You know, you can't like think, all right, someone's going to bail me out, someone's going to help me. But it's not that there won't be any help. But uh, with that kind of like thought process, it will help you like build yourself for the next level upon next level and um, be seriously super proactive. Always take your own education at your own hands. Um, yeah, I came in. To US, like no friends, no family. So um, all I did was cook and cook and cook. Um, on my days off, I read books and watch videos about cooking. Um, so it's it's really taking your own education, your own hands, and um, to so that you're prepared for the day that you actually have to perform at work and like research about all the things that you see at work. Um, even if it's like what's shishito pepper or uh, what's hose on, why? And at that point, I think. Uh, Dave had like the whole Harvard series out, mm-hmm. and I would just watch all that. Absorbed all the video. <laughs> yeah. So at this time, let's talk about Dave. You bring him up now. Here, you're clearly doing well, and you're working at Co. You've been in the industry. Is he uh, mentoring you? Is he is he teaching you aside? I know he's got many employees and a very busy life. But what was he? What was it like? What was your relationship like with Dave? Yeah. It, it, um, at the beginning, it was just uh, it was just like uh, I was like clearly a fanboy um but i was trying to keep my composure and just like all right to me it's just work you know i have to work focus and then everything else will speak for itself um but dave has always been a mentor to me on top of like my chefs that i work with like sean and josh uh so like even back then at some it was matt rodofka that really like mentored me but um i think in many aspects in the white perspective of like looking at food in a wider scope of things um they've managed to always like i always take heed from his advice um because he's out there looking at everything out there that he's seeing all the chefs that are doing their stuff um and he's always uh have really different perspective Mm -hmm. and even though it somewhat didn't make sense at some point I, I told myself, like, 
that's the reason why he's saying the things that he say. Give um, me some an example of like some advice that he gave you, like straight up, like a story, a David, good Dave Chang story. <laughs> There's a lot of Dave stories, but uh, I remember at one point at Co, I was like uh, CDC at Co, and I think there was a point that we, I mean, I and my two other sous chefs were doing our thing and trying to put on dishes and. Um, Dave came in and he ate it and I think he wasn't he he was like questioning us questioning me specifically like uh, it was definitely more aggressive but uh, it was uh, <laughs> the wordage was a little yeah, more aggressive yeah but I took it in like I was just like listening to what he was had to say and um, and and it just carried me throughout the whole time ever since that point like every dish have to uh, mean something to me you know like um at, I, I would agree, like, there are thousands of chefs out in this city that are great chefs, great cooks, and we all can cook good food, hopefully, you know, thankfully that we can, like, cook uh, delicious food. Um, but what's the next step, you know? It has to mean something to all of us. Um, and to rise to the pinnacle that you are at Co, which is a, one of the, the the most regarded restaurants in all of New York, and, like, that responsibility of, of doing the daily menu, I mean, you are setting yourself apart from those thousands of chefs that you speak of. Yeah. Dave would give me like uh, one-on-one lessons sometimes just like talking about food and that one thing that kind of carried me as well was the Venn diagram kind of um, the overlap of like uh, two different cultures or subcultures and when you bring in the third Venn diagram like circle like it, it kind of changes the uh, dynamic of the mm. dish. So, um, how that would such as Zen master David Chang, it feels very like <laughs> Phil Jackson, legendary basketball coach <laughs> style. Yeah, and he he and oh, those small little things just kind of like help me think about food a little bit more. And I'm sure like there's more for me to think about. Okay, so I want to talk about the 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 moment you were asked or told, or I'm not sure how it went down, but you were going to be the guy at Momofuku Sam, mm-hmm. which to me is the crown jewel of all of Momofuku. <laughs> it, it's the one I go to the most. It's People travel for it. I, it's just, it's legendary. Um, what was that like? Oh, it's, uh, I, I think it was like a surreal moment, and I, I, I couldn't believe that they would like us for me to like take on that huge responsibility and um, it was like full circle for me you know through even like flipping through the books of Momofuku for the first time in Singapore like uh, eight nine years ago and then to this point um, it's been a huge like humbling experience but um, all all I, I felt was like okay it means a lot in my heart obviously it has been a really successful restaurant throughout the years and there's so much legacy behind it what am I supposed to do you know? did you think you could do it uh, I wasn't thinking about it uh, because I knew I was going to have to do it so whether I can or not I would have to like try or just die trying you know I want to talk some uh, some dishes at Sambar right. I mean Sambar has has been kind of historically been broken down into a couple really classic categories the raw category ham it's always been a really robust ham mm-hmm. selection small plates and large plates so just let's go through some of the dishes that you that really are is your style of cooking that you've added to like the raw category and maybe some of the larger plates yeah um I've even when, like, in the beginning stages of, like, thinking, all right, what am I supposed to do? Um, uh, I always highly regard what Samba is really great for and 
not just the food, but I think the dynamics of like eating in that restaurant is very like uh, specific to Sambar. Um, and I, I am immensely proud about American country ham, even though I'm not from the country, um, not from the US, but I'm just really proud about what um, American country ham brings to the table um, as opposed to like getting prosciutto or like jamon. Um, that is like a huge legacy for me to like carry forward. Um, the large formats has always been a huge thing. Um, but we're we are already like thinking about tweaking one large format to bring on next, hopefully in a couple months. What um, is that? Tell me. <laughs> um, I, I would only say it'd be seafood large format. It would be a huge uh, undertaking for us because we've only been known to be a meat-centric restaurant. Um, but my focus is like great seafood. You know, I love great seafood. I have to say the whole fish I've ordered three times think, <laughs> uh, that you've always presented with um, a dis- very distinct and clear Southeast Asian, mm-hmm. you know, flavor, profile right. and vibe. That yeah. That's it's a go to for me. Thanks. Love it. Um, the beauty of like Southeast Asian cuisine, a lot of it is like night markets. And I feel like most people like, you can either choose to go to a restaurant to eat and sit down and order a meal or just go to a night market and just, like, make your rounds. And then you're, like, done. It's like a walking, tasting omakase kind of thing. <laughs> like, you pick and choose your kind of, like, adventure. And uh, I think a lot of food, um, to me, is based off of that or, like, a distinct, like, nostalgia from, like, mm-hmm. growing up eating food. Let's talk about the curly corn. <laughs> I love that dish. It's like I order it every time. Tell, mm-hmm. tell me about it. Tell us about it. Well, it's definitely a uh, thing that stemmed from, like, night markets. And, I mean, I've been to countless on night markets, and the one distinctive smell that you get into every night market, like in Singapore and Taiwan, um, especially, it's always corn. Either if it's steam on the cob or, like, they take off the kernels, they batter it, they fry it, or they roast it. Like through this like conveyor belt of like uh like uh barbecue kind of thing, and it's coated with like peanut sauce, and it's the the smell is so distinctive, and I think like corn has always been like even though like subconsciously it's just like in my mind while well, like growing up, it's like the smell of corn, and it's just like all right, I always thinking like, dude, I always want to get the corn, I I won't be able to get it because my mom would be like no, <laughs> we can't no, no uh no yeah and. Um, it's it's kind of like based off of that. And what's the dish? They walk right. through it. Uh, the dish is actually uh, uh, whole corn, like broke into quarters, like lengthwise, and it's just simply fried, uh, fried at like three fifty. And it just corn spears. I mean, that's the cool thing about it. They look like dill spears, right? Which is a very unique way to serve corn. And I um, mean, like everyone has been eating corn on a cob like since the discovery of corn, I believe, and. It's just like it, it kind of curls up and opens up the kernels. So when you do season it, every single kernel is like seasoned evenly as much as possible. And it's just like the, it dehydrated the corn a little bit to like really caramelize the corn kernels. And it has this like really roasted and sweet flavor. And it's really quick for us to like get um, the dish on the plate. And I feel like that's really important for running a restaurant like Sambar. It's yeah. yeah. 
And what about the shrimp toast? Clearly, that's a very important dish to kind of like the food that you represent. So when's the last time you had like a Chinese takeout shrimp toast? Oh, man, I think I've had it maybe last year or so. Yeah, Yeah, and I think uh, that was my first foray into shrimp toast in the U.S. And it was by far the worst experience. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm you, glad you went there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Not yeah, great. No. It, it, you could taste the 20 things that was fried before that shrimp toast in the shrimp toast. But um, it wasn't based off of that dish. But um, Thank you. I was <laughs> like, where are you going with this? Because it's not really a great memory. No, it but... kind of like like uh, propelled me to want to make a shrimp toast that actually wasn't that uh, oily, I guess. Um, it's based off of a few things. It's uh, also part of a night market kind of thing. I was in like uh, Thailand, Phuket. And there was this like lady out in the open with a huge vat of fry oil, just just like pinching off like like the spicy sh- fish paste and dropping in the fryer, and like she'd be doing like a hundred a minute, and I'd be like, yeah, and you just get a packet, and you just eat it, ripping hot out of the bag. It's the smell is intoxicating, um, and it's it, it's all that Venn diagram like thought process again. Um, uh, it's based off a like, like a fish paste steamed banana leaf dish in Singapore, and it's also in that similar vein, a similar texture, and then like a shrimp toast uh, that you get in like Chinese takeout in that kind of format. But um, yeah, it's basically like peeled shrimp with like chilies, like blended Thai basil, uh, blended uh, coriander. Uh, lime leaf and lemongrass and like it, you spread it on the toast and like it's you... such a good dish i've ordered it so many times it's great um tell me max like what do you do when you're not cooking right now in in new york are you are you going out to restaurants i mean have you made your pilgrimage to frenchette like every chef i mean where, where are you eating these days or what are you doing when you're not on the clock yeah dude uh i think that's like a huge question now we we do go out and check out like new spaces and I think on top of that, like, uh, it's one of my wishes to kind of eat out at all the top restaurants in New York City when I got here. And I realized I'm going to be here for a long haul, like, kind of slow down a little bit. Um, But now it's just uh, going out with my friends and just, like, having a good time. Uh, Most places I go to, it's usually, like, uh, the Four Horsemen, um, Alameda that's in Greenpoint. It's like very like chill spot, but like my boy Nick there is just like doing good food and it's a good place to hang out. Um while there it's like a great place for like natural wine and like it's it's always the kind of like food that's not too serious, but it's always high quality. Yeah, like it's high it's up. like like super soignet yeah. chef term, yeah. And I finally uh went to like chef's table at Brooklyn Fair. Mm-hmm. Um so. What do you think? Give us your review. <laughs> I, it's all that I ever thought it was gonna be though. It's uh really high high luxury items and it's it's uh Cesar's like focus is super like uh razor sharp and I that's all that's I wouldn't expect any lesser from him for sure. It was really like properly like ultimately executed food at a really high level and yeah, it was a great time. Was yeah. A great time. I was checking out your Instagram, and you were like out in Kansas, man. Is that? Oh right. I yeah. saw like you were at like a gun store. I oh, yeah, wanted, yeah, like, yeah. Like, dude, what is it like? Like Singapore, uh, there's 
probably I mean, I know the laws there. They're probably like a little bit different than American laws for guns. And you're out in Kansas. Like, what were you doing in Kansas? And what were you doing in a gun store? And what were you thinking, man? Well, I, it was a uh, part of a whole trip. Like I was went to uh, Heritage Farms. Oh, sure. You're visiting uh, yeah. farms. Of course you were. Yeah. Right, right. And uh, I think Patrick from uh, Heritage Farms was like really awesome. He's just like, hey, Max, you're coming with me, man. <laughs> we're going out there. And uh, we landed in like uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And we were driving down the road and everyone was like talking about this like Bass Pro Shop, Bass Pro Shop. I was like, what are you talking about? What? I've never been to a Bass Pro Shop. And lo and behold, we're driving down the street. Boom! It was this huge pyramid out in the middle of Memphis, Tennessee, like blinding. The sun was like at twelve noon. It was blinding, and when you walk in there, it just felt like you were in Jurassic Park. When I went up, went up there, there was this huge like stack of like boxes. I was like, "What is it?" And it was like a whole stack of like shotgun shells on sale, like five ninety nine. Like oh, man. that was the trip to. That's America. It is. It is pretty America for me. It's yeah. uh, it's an interesting part. So yeah, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast um, if you had uh, your chance, your own chance to write a cookbook or a food or culinary book or journey, what would it be? Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I think it's to highlight a lot of the other cuisines and like cultures out there that. Uh, we all enjoy. I think promoting traveling, it's great. Um, I always feel like you gain a wider perspective when you like go out there to travel. And it's always the uh, micro subcultures that I it really intrigues me, even though if it's like some weird, funky, fatty like street food in uh, Japan, you know, that no one would have seen other than three years later, it's out in the global market because someone decided to like, bring it to a global market. Um, I think like uh, how how to embed yourself into the local culture, even though you're there for like three days, you just go out into like some small neighborhood and then just like live the life of how they live. Is, is there a culture that comes to mind that you just are really interested in these days that you'd want to like dive into? I mean, I've always like gravitated to like Japanese cuisine, but I think a lot of uh, props should be given to like uh, the really uh, unspoken parts of Southeast Asia. Um, I think uh, Singapore, Singaporean food, it's like a huge amalgamation of all the cultures around this region and like just the nature of why Singapore existed and how it existed throughout the years. Like people migrated from all over, like uh, my grand father was from China um, and we are surrounded by uh, Malaysia and Indonesia and like the food kind of naturally just kind of like mix and matches uh, it wasn't fusion it was just uh, organically put together mm-hmm. I would love to read that book <laughs> thanks man Max Ung thank you for joining the Taste Podcast thanks for having me Here's Matt speaking with the editors of Sprudge at the Counterculture Training Center in New York. The Sprudge guys. What's up? What's up? I'm so happy to, to interview you. So 
tell me, I just want to know you're in town right now. You're here for the coffee festival, but what do you, what have you, what have you had today? Like, just let's break it down. Like what have you consumed coffee wise? We had uh, uh, Guatemala coffee from Weiwei Tenango at Everyman Espresso this morning to start. Uh, First cup of the day. It was espresso coffee and then filter coffee. Two. And uh, that was to start. And then what, what was next? Um, we went to a place called Kopi Tayam, um, which is like a good uh, uh, Malaysian uh, Singaporean restaurant that's not too far away from here down on Broadway. And they, we had like this super good, really interesting, uh, what they call white coffee, which um, is coffee that's roasted with margarine and then served with a little bit of sweetened condensed milk with it. Uh, and Zachary, you had like good black tea too, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Which was delicious. Yeah. And then, we, good. and then we like moved on to tea from there. Yeah. At Tay Company. Yeah, Tay Company, mm. which is in the West Village. It's just like a little Love that place. Uh, in a little townhouse. Um, spent a lot of time in the townhouses on this trip. Um, <laughs> uh, in in the little townhouse. Townhouse there. life? Yeah, that's right. Like private parties for Sprudge? Like book parties, <laughs> like salons? Kind of. Okay. Uh, More like salons. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, over there in the West Village, which is really cute. And we drank some delicious oolong tea and uh, hung out. And it was nice. I want to cover... Um, broad topics and also more granular, nerdier shit. I mean, you guys are like the pitchfork of coffee, and I mean that in the most positive way. How do you feel about that? Well, well, we've never given someone a zero point zero, <laughs> so I don't know how pitch how pitchforkian. Uh, and we don't have a festival yet. Oh, no, man. I'm sure you could have had one. Uh, well, we may still one day. Yeah, um, but um, I would say. It, it, Successful indie media is so rare, I'll take any comparison we can get. Someday. And you can sell the Condé Nast for millions of dollars eventually. Yeah, do you have that number? Do you, <laughs> do you, know, like, do you know people? But tell me, what, not, not what is your mission right now? I know you started um, as a small, as basically a blog, like a linear blog updating every day, timestamps and all that. But now you're a very robust editorial operation. So what are you, what are you doing right now? What's like your main goal with Sprudge? We continue to do uh, city guides. Uh, it's really big for us. Um, continue to push the cafe write-ups and exciting things that are happening in the coffee community that are progressive. And Yeah. I would say it's a mix of news and culture. We, we publish daily news every day, sometimes a couple of pieces of daily news every day. We also do original editorial and reported features. Um, a story on Sprudge might be 200 words or 2,000 words, depending on the, the story and the topic. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that's been part of our mission from the very beginning and continues to to be a really big part of what we do is this idea that coffee deserves journalism, that it's a topic that's worthy of critical thought and intelligent writing, just the same as food or wine or any other kinds of delicious things that you consume and can spend too much time thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to create that and make a home for that in 2009, 2010, when we first started, was a really big part of our mission, and it continues to be a really big part of our mission today. So what has been the barrier to get more people to think about coffee the way they think about craft beer, which, you know, I think everyone has an opinion about craft beer. Not as many people have an opinion about coffee. What's been the barrier? I mean, I think that um, because coffee is so ubiquitous, because you can get it for free at the, like, 
oil change place yeah. and the bank and it's everywhere it's it's hard for a lot of people who have appreciated mm-hmm. coffee their entire lives to think about it in a more craft way i think it's changing i i think oh, that sure the, no the and this is something that we have been fortunate to be able to document as more and more cafes open as the influence of brands like counterculture, some of the other really wonderful coffee bars you can walk to, you know, just in this part of the city um, have sort of grown that creates more and more um, at least curious consumers, you know, and maybe can, can start people down the process of, uh, of being interested. And and that's who I think we've tried to write this book for Mm -hmm. is people who know enough to know, to go to a cafe that serves nice coffee and maybe have their interest peaked enough there. And then we'd like to hook arms with them and sort of talk about what's interesting, lightly make fun of it, (laughs) point point them in an interesting direction and hopefully come away with it all having like appreciated it a little bit more. That's a great answer. I read it slightly this, um, you start at the cafe level. That's where the education is going to happen first. And then you bring coffees into your home. You start, you know, getting subscription services. You start getting your, your home brewing apparatus and your method. Is that true or is it happening both simultaneously? The cafe level, I mean, there's no substitute for it. And this is something that we, I, I think, remain in awe of. Zachary worked in some really influential cafes back in the first decade of the 2000s. I have never worked uh, at a cafe. And so it's all still magic to me. And when I go to them, even like today, I think there's nothing quite like getting handed that that perfect a uh, cup of coffee somewhere nice and uh, th- that kind of opens the door to inquiry. So I really think that the cafes and the baristas are uh, that work that they do. If, if we can be an echo of that in the book, we'll have done an okay job. Your chapters are really fascinating or your organization, I guess it's like three main chapters, coffee around the world, coffee at home, and then the future. Is that right? Or maybe cafe. So there's, there's like, four like one of them. more. There's one more. Yeah. Okay. Future, I think it's home. like, yeah. 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 I think so. But these are like, let's talk about the book. Like these are, you're, you're, you're in these four categories. There's different rules you're calling them or, mm. or tenants. What do you Yeah. Think? They're, they're like gentle suggestions. <laughs> We've said that, yes, the, the, the gentle, the new gentle suggestions of coffee that we were told wouldn't sell as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, so um no the the rules construct i thought that was funny. the the rules construct uh um came in from 10 speed press our publisher had published a book in 2017 from uh, a very renowned wine writer called john bonnet and his was the new wine rules and so when we got to start having the conversation with them about if perhaps we'd like to publish a book um that construct already sort of existed and had some mm-hmm. some DNA that we could sort of be um, uh, petri dished off from, um, and so that was where some of the hook stuff came in. The, the books are very different, but uh, the idea of grouping it around um, sort of useful tools or lessons, and um, hopefully done in a way that isn't like it's democratic. Yeah, you're yeah. super democratic. I mean, you say straight up like you can have milk like in any coffee at any time, like because if you like milk, that's cool. Yeah. Now, I think other coffee books have have absolutely not said that. They've said the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. So I'm just going to say, like, as a reader, I think that's why I love this book. It's one of my favorite of the year. You should all buy it. They really are making coffee fun and accessible. Yeah. But 
Can I say the butt right now? Go ahead. There are some rules. Like there yeah. are some yeah, yeah. rules. Yeah. We yeah. have we have takes. You have takes. Yeah, I like that. Takes. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go through a few of them and just we can like riff on them a little bit. Um, first, like darker is not stronger. Like, what does that mean exactly? Well, I'm just curious for people in the room right now. Like, how have you talked to folks that think that dark roasted coffee is stronger? It, I feel like it's a common misconception that people have that um, you need like a French roast to have like a strong, bold cup of coffee, which is just not true. Untrue. Untrue. I mean, when you say strong too, it's like, let's unpack that word. What right. does that mean? It could mean a lot of different things. Or bold. Or bold. <laughs> bold. Uh, yeah, I think a way that's maybe okay to think about it is like, you can have a little, um, you can have a shot of Fernet or a shot of mm-hmm. vodka. And the vodka is very light tasting and the fernet really like n- is noticeably strong and bitter and intense tasting and one of them will be like 40 percent alcohol by volume and the other will be like 18 percent alcohol by volume so what we associate with strength being like a particularly encompassing sensation to drink does not necessarily equate to like caffeine strength, which is, I think, a natural sort of assumption and has definitely been played up by marketing for 100 years, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You're right about gear. Um, you don't need fancy gear to brew great coffee at home, but also good espresso at home is not cheap. Mm-hmm. I think that was really, that was a strong sentiment. Strong statement, strong statement. Yeah. Yeah, because we because you can buy shit for like a like one hundred and eighty dollars for a pour over. Like it's possible to do that. Yeah, that's a lot of money for at home apparatus. One certainly can spend as much money as you could possibly imagine <laughs> for a home espresso setup, and in that way, it's very similar to. I'm things. just saying pour over too. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's like a, having an audiophile sound system or any other kind of rabbit hole that costs a lot of money. Um, the home espresso thing, I think, uh, when it's done well, it can be somebody's like crowning achievement as a home hobby, right? And those are really fun places to go. And like, we have this buddy in San Francisco, Larry Berger, who we've known for a decade. And when you go over to his apartment in San Francisco, it's like you're going to a cafe. Like, he just serves you the perfect home espresso. And every morning he dials it in and he's just like so into it, you know? But like, very few people have the time or the like Larry Burgerness required <laughs> to pull that off. I'm here um, for the Larry Burgers of the world. I yeah, love that. no, and we firmly are too. Um, <laughs> but for most people, I think it's our take, at least in the book, that you may be better served by patronizing your quality focused local coffee bar and having them expertly pull you shots of espresso uh, at, at your time of choosing. Um, and if you want to go the other direction, you can do it. But if you want it to taste like that cafe, you know, you got to spend a little money. Mm-hmm. But for pour overs for that first cup at 6, 10 a.m., you don't need that much to spend that much, right? Right, yeah. No, uh, the thing that I think that we talk about in the book and we sort of uh, tell everybody uh, is that you should be, for about 200, 250 bucks, 200 bucks, depending on when you're shopping on Amazon, you can get like a, 
Bonavita home dripper, which is essentially the same idea as a Mr. Coffee or any of the kind of kind of home dripper, but it's temperature variable and stable. Not to say anything bad about the Mr. Coffee uh, Corporation or its subsidiaries and yeah. rights holders, uh, but uh, the Bonavita mm-hmm. does a very nice job of being temperature stable and consistent and like putting out water at the same interval and making you like a nice drip cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And then you get a little grinder, um, maybe get a little scale to measure the stuff out. We have a chapter about how scales are okay. And uh, and that should be kind of all you yeah. really Wait, need. Are we talking about a hand grinder or a burr grinder, like electric? What do you... you can go hand grinder if you like the manualness <laughs> of it and you want to spend like 30 bucks. If you want to go electric, the, um, the company Barazza has mm-hmm. an entry-level home burr grinder that's like, you can find it for like 60 bucks sometimes on Amazon, depending on when you're shopping for it. Yeah. The single more. blade one, though, from Crops, that's pretty shitty, right? Yeah, the spice grinder. It's a spice grinder. It's yeah. not really yeah. coffee. It's good for spices. It's great for spices. But it's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's also so loud and will scare your cats. Yeah. Like, it's oh, yeah. really mean for your animals. Definitely. Yeah. A, a lot of very smart people have invested a lot of time and energy in, like, explaining what's wrong with it. We tried to very simply condense it into, like, it will make the coffee uneven, which will screw with your recipe. So don't do it. Get this. Like that's one of the things in the book is like, how do you take this thing that like literally whole books have been written about and condense it into like three paragraphs and then move on. Um, and, but that's one of the ones that we kind of tried to do that with. I like that you said the word recipe. I think it's really smart. And I'd like to focus on that because when you're buying all these bags of coffee from around the world, you're traveling, you're like bringing them back to your friends. How important, let's stress how important is it to have an actual recipe to actually follow some methodology when you're when you're making these different roasts and different varietals at home i i think it's very important to have a recipe that you follow i think that there are hundreds of recipes you could follow um and um a lot of roasters these days will have like a brew recipe with the coffee that they're that they're shipping out which i think is very helpful um but yeah i think recipes are crucial Mm -hmm. when brewing coffee i had a, a person who's very smart uh, and knowledgeable about tea uh, explain this to me once and say that tea is like sauteing something where you want to kind of smell it as it's moving its way through and you can like touch it with the top of the gaiwan lid and see where it's at in each steep and before you pour it and it's very sort of intuitive and sensory versus making coffee it's a black cup of liquid at the end. Mm-hmm. And so you don't know if it's going to be a really good tasting one or a really lousy tasting one till you get there and drink it. And that's sort of the same way as like baking a cake, right? So like true. You don't know if the inside of the cake is raw or if you got the baking powder ratio wrong or whatever until you actually get to the end and taste it. Um, and so that's where following some like guideline rules things or even just very directly following a recipe on the same equipment with the same, you know, every trying to control every variable mm-hmm. um, can make it so your coffee tastes good. Let's talk about roast profiles. I think you say roast profiles matter. And just educate us about what a roast profile is and how we should be looking at that when we're buying coffee. Oh, my goodness. Well, we, we describe it in um, the form <laughs> No, let's go right to the text. We describe it in the form of kitty cats. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we were... It's a little cheeky with the cats. We actually spent forever on this because we uh, every <laughs> every coffee book ever has a roast profile chart. And yeah, we we're like we don't want to have a roast profile chart. Our book's different. We're different, you know. Uh, and the publishers were like, okay, but you gotta have you know you're gonna have to have a roast profile chart on. Uh, we fought it mildly, and then we finally were like, what if it was kitty cats? 
<laughs> and, and there's four different for the podcast. There's four different cats, five different cats. It's actually five. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. My my cat's on the far right. Yeah. Yeah. You your kitty at home is burnt. Um, <laughs> I think my kitty at home might be like. So the, like we don't way. want burnt coffee. Some people over. Some people do. Some, Some people, people love burnt coffee. coffee. Tell me about that. Who like, loves burnt? Does anyone like? Have you been to Italy? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we can talk shit about Italy. Exactly. It's all. Oh, I'm not talking shit. Like no. Do you like, like it? Yeah. Oh man. If you can go and drink that, there is nothing like it. Like that real experience of being there and getting to drink the espresso, even if it's not like what your jam might be in your normal life. Like, yeah, for sure. So you're, this is like the diplomatic side, which I love about you because most people would be like the coffee sucks in Italy. No, 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 no. But can't you love both? You can. No, true. And it doesn't have to be so polar. Okay. Put it over ice cream. Float (laughs) Float it with a little grappa. Yeah. You're like mix okay, so okay. Yeah. Um <laughs> so rose profiles. Um well everybody's got their own deal for what they like for it or whatever. I think that typically the third wave style is lighter ish than the classic second wave style, which mm-hmm. we th- typically associate with Starbucks, not to say anything bad about Starbucks or its subsidiaries or rice holders, but that's uh, typically what it would get associated with. Uh, the third wave style is noticeably a little bit lighter and some might say more expressive. So expressive the- means it, it actually is telling the story of where it came from when yeah. you're lighter, yeah. when you're like touching it with less heat. Yeah. yeah, it gets back to the produce thing of like, this is fruit that came from somewhere and like a person grew it. Uh, um, so it ties back into that stuff. And then I think the great debate sort of within that for progressive coffee these days is like, are you going to roast it like really light or like uh-huh. just a little bit light or not really so light at all, but your cafe still looks like a third wave cafe. So what do you People do? People are like shifting in their yeah. seats here. I love it when you're saying this in yeah. the audience. Yeah. It's a thing. It's a, it's one of the things that sort of within uh, coffee is endlessly debatified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why it's fun though, right? To actually d- dive into roast profiles. Like this is a fun thing. This yeah. isn't like yeah. painful. It's. I mean, I'm kind of screaming in my seat. Um, <laughs> I feel. I feel like. Uh, like um, the one thing that I want to say is that the further you go in roast, the more you can uh, mask the defect in um, coffee that isn't quality and was perhaps purchased at a low price, an unfair price, and so a dark French roast coffee might taste great to somebody, and it could be sourced like sustainably. It could come from a quality place, but often that's not the case. Right. It's the mask, right? And when you have a coffee that's a more medium roast or just developed um, where you're really tasting the coffee itself, um, you can taste that quality. Yeah, that's that's all right. And so much of the stuff is learned, you know, like it's learned palate stuff and, and very much generational. Uh, like if you never had light roasted coffee or even like medium-ish light roasted coffee for 60 years and then your like brat kid came home and served some lemonade coffee. right it's like, like lemonade right? Out, mom and dad you know <laughs> which like we definitely have both done uh uh you know there's it's palate stuff is so learned and and what people like and what mm-hmm. they eat and drink is this very kind of intimate thing so um i don't think you see us in the book we don't say Roast profiles matter, and this is the right one. You don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can read between the lines, though. 
<laughs> and read your website and follow you on social media and listen to your I love your podcast. They have a podcast, podcast listener. It's great. Um, let's talk about bar- the barista. You in the cafe section, like that job is really fucking hard, and you really make a statement like you need to respect your barista and treat them like a bartender and treat them like a server and always tip your barista. And I think they often get a bad reputation. They're you know sometimes they have an attitude problem. That's like the cliche. But just to tell us like why you should do all of the above. Because it's the right thing to do. It's true. Uh-uh. The job itself, though, is, is probably for, for, for our audience, um, many do not understand exactly what the barista does, but there's a lot going on there, that job. Yeah. Right. Um, f- 14 years ago, f- 12 years ago, Zachary, you were... 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Four, three years ago, when Zachary <laughs> was 22, he was working as a barista here in New York, um, and it was 2005, 2006, and uh, yeah. very kind of early in the era of there being, like, third wavy coffee in New York or whatever. Which and, cafe, can we just say? Uh, Ninth Street Espresso. Oh, great, yeah. Establishment. Uh, and in that era... When you were sort of the only place doing it, mm-hmm. I think that it almost becomes like a suit of armor, right? Like the the attitude thing, or it's like an us against the world. Like, we know we're putting out this quality product, and people really don't seem to appreciate it, but here we are, you know, um, like making our art or whatever, and people don't like it. Um, or give us attitude, or some people really love it, and most people are like, why is this expensive? Uh, and uh, that has happily, I think for everyone in this room and certainly for us as people documenting it changed a great deal over the ensuing 14 years uh and now there are i mean i walked past like i went and bought some soda water before this thing and i walked past like three high-end coffee bars just in this neighborhood Mm -hmm. in new york and uh when that happens it reaches this sort of like critical mass of understanding of like uh you know, remember how people used to like make fun of like saying where what farm the produce was from yeah. on menus? <laughs> you know, that's like every place does that now. Like it becomes this thing that uh, is less so terribly out on a ledge and thus better understood and and more appreciated, or at least hopefully more appreciated. I, I hope people that work as priests now feel like that because it when I talk to people who who worked in the kind of good old days slash bad old days, I think there was some stuff about it that sucked that was that was hard um but uh yeah, the etiquette stuff um being kind to each other in public uh and a and a courteous human being is something that we both personally care about a lot, and so trying to communicate that um through coffee stuff was important to us. I do want to go back to Starbucks because I think it's interesting um it's such a big topic, but I want to just kind of recognize how Starbucks is important, right? It is where a lot of third wave um, coffee individuals have received training, either at the barista level, uh, employee level, or at the corporate level. Um, do you agree with that? Is that that's my perception? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, my first three years in coffee were at a Starbucks coffee in Tacoma, Washington, mm-hmm. and it was a great experience. Um, I I learned a lot about being a retail uh, customer service person. And um, and your IQ about coffee increased? Did they train you on something? Yeah, I, I think it was right at the beginning of the like coffee passport 
This was 2002. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right that, I mean, they were really big on the cream-based frappuccino when I oh, worked yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, <laughs> like coffee started to like, they started to kind of go full steam ahead like a few years after I had left. But yeah, they're, I mean, I mean, nowadays you go to a Starbucks reserve and they have the pour overs, they have the nitro cold brew. Yeah. They're making a shitload of money in that nitro cold brew too. Oh Are my they? God. Yeah. It just, I'm just speculating. But yeah. <laughs> um, they, they, I remember we used to go when we were like 16, uh, we had the drama teacher who you could show up 40 minutes late and just reek like camel red lights. And as long as you had a couple of like gingerbread mochas for her, all was forgiven and it was fine. So we could go and hang out at the Starbucks and just like really be delinquents. But if we showed up with coffee, it was totally cool. And that was one of the first places that like I really loved as a coffee space that felt like subversive you know in retrospect it was a starbucks in the suburbs so i don't really know how subversive that was but it felt like it man and uh and yeah i think we we poke fun um from time to time but it's from a mostly loving place yeah is that fair to say yeah yeah Yeah. the food's kind of sucks so we can say that too the starbucks food i mean the sausage sandwiches saved me on so many trips i mean so it's all right (laughs) I just had to like say that it wasn't all process. That's my point. <laughs> um, let's close. I have one last question. Just give me each of you one roaster, one coffee company, and one cafe we should know about. We should be seeking out. I did not give you this in the prompt, so I'm putting you on the spot. Um, all right. Yeah. I always say uh, uh, the cafe experience that is like kind of my favorite cafe experience in the world um, is at a place called uh, La Fontaine de Belleville in the 11th in Paris. And uh, it's the it's this roasting company that's been there called uh, uh, Cafes Belleville. They've been there for maybe five years now. And uh, a year or two ago, they bought a 100-year-old Parisian sidewalk cafe um, and really didn't do anything to it other than put a nice espresso machine on the counter put a very nondescript retail wall of their roasted coffee and like make the bread and cheese better. And otherwise it is exactly all the same energy and momentum and vibe and like rattan chairs outside and sidewalk seating. And like you can go there for coffee, for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, for beers at night. It's open till late. It's open first thing in the morning. And it's just sort of like, you know, you can hear the accordion playing in the background and it's like, it's amazing. Like it's, just uh has become sort of like that uh americans have a long tradition of idealizing paris and dreaming of paris or whatever but it's become for me the place that's like my dream cafe if you could portal me to anywhere in the world i would go there and have a coffee and then go out and walk around and then come back and have a beer and paris is i mean france is another country that's slightly challenged when it comes to cafe coffees right uh, paris is one of the greatest cities in the world to drink coffee in now uh, this is it wasn't one, always yeah this is one of the cities that's come so far so fast and uh it's one of the ones that like we have been very fortunate to have our website in the era that, that we have because we've gotten to really document that uh through a combination of reporters over the last uh six seven years but yeah it is uh from being a place where it was hard to find coffee six or seven years ago when when oliver strand was first writing about it to now like it's it's one of the great places not just in europe but like in the whole world to go and and drink a coffee and your uh your coffee company that we should be seeking out and then i'll get to you 
Th- that's that, I'm gonna say that's the cafe and the coffee company. Oh, it's both. Okay. Yeah, it's both because it's it's the uh, cafe's Belleville is the roaster, and then this is their cafe, uh, which is called La Fontaine. De Got Belleville. it. Okay. Yeah. Um, some of the cafes I'm really excited about are the new Go Get 'Em Tiger mm-hmm. cafes in Los Angeles. Uh, Kyle Glanville and Charles Pabinski have put together just a really fun company. Um, I just I love the menu. They're it's very like playful but serious um and they just started roasting matthew patrick williams who helped us with the technical stuff in the book um he's the roaster there and they've been sending us coffee every week and it's i'm just always excited to open the box and get into it and is that are they doing retail coffee now yeah cool it's good to know there's more. I mean, there's more places. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we, live, too, we, live, you know? we live in Portland, and there's some really yeah. great cafes in Portland, too. Uh, our buddy Ian, who does Deadstock Coffee in Portland, is also, like, strongly a must-visit. Like, if you're in the city or region, you should go in and go see what he's doing there. Um, the The cafe has this energy in it, and, like, the amount of creative people coming in and out of it is really really special and um ian came up as a, a sneaker designer at nike and then sort of went and opened his dream like coffee hangout sneaker bar and um it it could it's one of those kinds of things that like it could only be in portland like in that city where it's all the sneaker industry stuff is and um it's a version of portland that i think is very different from the kind of portlandia caricature of it and um and and that's cool and and uh, we like that place a lot too Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.